Hello, my rebels. Today, I want to show you what we're up to in Switzerland. I'm sort of jealous because I myself am forbidden from getting on an airplane or a train. I'm one of the millions of Canadians that is discriminated against our civil liberties being suspended by Justin Trudeau. The establishment seems fine with that. But nonetheless, we were able to send six people to Switzerland from our other friendly countries, the UK, Australia, and the US, to cover the World Economic Forum and the World Health Assembly. I think we're going to do some outstanding journalism. I know we are because we already are. Uh, before I get there, I got to say, look, if you're listening to this on a podcast, thank you. But you've got to see the video that Avi Yamini recorded in Davos this morning. I just, you've got to see it with your eyes because you've got to see the police and the soldiers and you've got to see the fake storefronts and you've got to see the logos of the media companies. It really is a visual moment. So you can do that by getting the video version of this podcast. We call it Rebel News Plus. Go to rebelnewsplus.com. Eight bucks a month. That's half the price of Netflix. And just click subscribe, rebelnewsplus.com. Click subscribe. Eight bucks a month. You get my show every day. And then four weekly shows. So 36 shows a month. And it's not even how many there are. It's stuff you just can't find elsewhere. No one else is doing in Davos what we're doing. All right, without further ado, here's today's podcast. Tonight, rebel journalists arrive in Switzerland. I'll show you what they're doing already. It's May 20th, and this is the Esther Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. You know, I used to travel a lot, not just for work, but there was a year and a half when I worked at Sun News in Toronto. My family was in Calgary. I flew back twice a week. I did 200 flights in a year. I haven't flown at all since the flight ban was imposed, the no-fly list on the unvaccinated. And I haven't left the country since before the emergency was declared. I don't know. I think if I didn't have the social connection here at the office where I, yeah, if I didn't have a family, I think I'd go mad. I mean, you can find a lot to do in a city, but even then, Toronto was one of the most locked down cities in the country. If I were a single person, and if I didn't have a company that people felt comfortable coming to work at, I think I might've gone mad. I think a lot of people did. I think we won't know for years the mental health damage done. Politicians like to talk about mental health. I don't think they believe it. What they did, not just to regular people, not just to the single person without a family, lonely and distressed the last two years, but what they did to children and teenagers is unacceptable, and I'll never forgive them for that, frankly. Um, Canada remains the only country in the world that does not allow people to fly or take a train. That might work in a tiny town like, I don't know, Monaco or... Vatican City, but it doesn't work in the second largest country in the world. It's shocking to me that the establishment does not care. 
I hear a lot of debate about Bill 21 in Quebec. You might remember that was the bill that imposed a secular nature on the public service. And you can agree with it or not. But that is regarded as the greatest sin in civil liberties in this country. You can see it brought up in the Conservative Party debate. How dare you allow this violation of civil liberties? Namely, that Quebecers don't want any religious symbols on government employees at work. I can frankly see both sides of that. But to compare that to the fact that six, seven million Canadians are banned from traveling because of a government edict that makes no sense scientifically or epidemiologically, and the establishment is fine with that, is atrocious. I'm pleased to say that in recent weeks, namely since the overthrow of the Liberal Aaron O'Toole as the party leader, the Conservative Party of Canada is making up for a year of silence on the matter, sort of. Uh, Melissa Landsman, the transport critic for the party, has raised this no-fly list many times in Parliament. I think uh, she's doing a good job on it. Take a look. The Honourable Member for Thornhill. 50,000 fans watch the Jays play live. No masks, no mandates. Over 20,000 with standing room only to see the Leafs in the playoffs. No masks, no mandates. And thank goodness this government's not in charge of sports. The secret public health advice that they are getting seems exclusively focused on punishing Canadians who want to fly and see their families or get back to work. So I'll ask again, which day will this government end the vindictive mandates? The Honourable Minister of Health. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm very glad to answer this question. There's no secret, Mr. Speaker, no secret evidence. Everyone knows that vaccination saves lives. 163,000 lives would have been saved in the United States just with Omicron if they had had a higher vaccination rate. In Canada, Mr. Speaker, we have been vaccinated to a large number, to a large extent, and that's why we have been successful at having one of the lowest rates of death in, Can in the world with COVID-19. I think it's smart for the Conservatives to lean into this issue. I think it's good for the Conservatives to build up bona fides on civil liberties. Someone has to, and the left isn't. I think it expands the party's base to include people who used to call themselves liberals, or even New Democrats, or even Greens. Anyone who's not jabbed can see a champion now in the Conservative Party. Speaking in a uh, pragmatic way, it will help them regain the trust of people who broke off to support Maxime Bernier and the People's Party. And I guess most obviously, the Conservative Party can be conservative again. That's one of the institutions that has failed us so badly, opposition parties in this country. I think it's a disgrace that Canada's courts have not done a thing. You know, Brian Peckford, the former premier, in fact, the last surviving premier to sign the Charter of Rights, his, he is a plaintiff amongst many in a lawsuit to challenge the no-fly list. The courts won't hear it for months. Why? In the United States, their Supreme Court has issued a half dozen important rulings on lockdown laws. Why have our courts failed us? Here at Rebel News, we used to fly a lot. We haven't done a lot of flying. I mean, there was no reason to fly, I suppose. There were very few events. Luckily, we had rebel reporters across the country. And we traveled by truck, it's true. During the convoy, we embedded people in the trucker convoy going across the country, Mocha Bazirgan and Celine Galas. And also we had reporters from different cities. But events are back in Canada now. And most of our staff are still prisoners, really. We're under 
house arrest. Which brings me to the topic of the day. In a resort town called Davos in Switzerland, the World Economic Forum is meeting. They too haven't met in person for a couple of years. And the same exact days, elsewhere in Sweden, in the city of Geneva, the World Health Organization is having its assembly. As you know, that's the UN committee in charge of our health. You know Davos. It's where Justin Trudeau goes to talk about what a feminist he is before people laughed at that. Remember this? Uh, incredibly proud uh, to have a partner in my wife, Sophie, who is uh, extremely committed to women and girls' issues. But she took me aside a few months ago and said, okay, uh, it's great that you're engaged and modeling to your daughter that you want her empowered and everything, but you need to take as much effort to talk to your sons, my eight-year-old boy and my two-year-old, so a little young still, uh, about how he treats women and how uh, he is going to be growing up to be a feminist just like dad. And by the way, we shouldn't be afraid of the word feminist. Yeah. Men and women mm -hmm. should use it to describe themselves <laughs> anytime they want. Davos has some drama because it really is the titans of the world. I mean, Trudeau was sort of there for a bit of humorous effect. He was showing everyone his socks and talking about how feminist he was. But there are some masters of the universe who go there. A couple years ago, George Soros gave a keynote address at the World Economic Forum, and I was very interested to see that he saw China as his great enemy, and he denounced them in a keynote speech. The social credit system is not yet fully operational, but it's clear where it's heading. It will subordinate the fate of the individual to the interests of the one-party state in ways unprecedented in history. <clears throat> I find the social credit system frightening and abhorrent. Unfortunately, some Chinese find it rather attractive because it provides information and services that aren't currently available and can also protect law-abiding citizens against enemies of the state. China is not the only authoritarian regime in the world, but is undoubtedly the wealthiest, strongest, and most developed in machine learning and artificial intelligence. This makes Xi Jinping the most dangerous opponent of those who believe in the concept of open society. But Xi isn't alone. Authoritarian regimes are proliferating all over the world, and if they succeed, they will become totalitarian. Well, George Soros is a very powerful man. He's the man who broke the Bank of England. He's a billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, and certainly one of the most politically active with his money. But he's not bigger and tougher and stronger and richer than Xi Jinping. And it comes down to money. It is called the World Economic Forum, not the world's civil rights forum. And in fact, it was that uh, Soros lost that battle and Xi Jinping became the honored guest of the World Economic Forum. Look at this speech where he was their hero. He's the new boss of the World Economic Forum. At least he's their emotional hero. Klaus Schwab remains their 
executive director, but look at this from Xi Jinping. The right way forward for humanity is peaceful development and win-win cooperation. Different countries and civilizations may prosper together on the basis of respect for each other, and seek common ground and win-win outcomes by setting aside differences. We should follow the trend of history, work for a stable international order, advocate common values of humanity, and build a community with a shared future for mankind. We should choose dialogue over confrontation, inclusiveness over exclusion, and stand against all forms of unilateralism, protectionism, hegemony, or power politics. China will faithfully fulfill its obligations. And deepen economic and trade ties with other RCEP parties. China will also continue to work for the joining of the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement, with a view to further integrating into the regional and global economy and achieving mutual benefit and win-win results. Well, they're meeting again, and I want to be there. And it's the worst people in the world. Here is. The president of Pfizer talking about something that, until this moment, if you were to say it, people would say you're a nut, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're paranoid. Namely, that there will be a chip implanted in your vaccine. If you were to say that, that's actually literally one of the things described on the YouTube list of things you can't say. They specifically say that if you make a video claiming there's a microchip in a vaccine. You will have your channel shut down. Well, here's the president of Pfizer saying he's going to do that. It is a basically biological chip that it is in the tablet, and once you take the tablet and dissolves into your stomach, sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that compliance.、Uh, the insurance companies to know that the medicines that patients should take, they do take them. Uh, it is、uh, fascinating what happens in in、uh, this field. I don't know. Does that YouTube video get taken down? There's scary people who work for the World Economic Forum year round. Obviously, Xi Jinping and George Soros and Burlov Pfizer don't. But here's someone named Yuval Noah Harari, and he's sort of the deep thinker of、um, of the World Economic Forum, and he talks a lot about hacking people, transhumanism. Where you basically plug into someone's brain and body and can manipulate them. He calls it hacking people. Listen to this guy for a bit. Authoritarian regimes, but also by democratic governments. The U.S., for example, is building a global surveillance system, while my home country of Israel is trying to build a total surveillance regime in the West Bank. But control of data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. He really is like the mini me to Klaus Schwab. Who's Klaus Schwab? Well, here's a little trailer we made for 
a docu-series that we're rolling out tonight. Watch a little bit about this. Klaus Schwab is the star of this. The effect will be much similar to uh, world war, and actually all countries in the world are affected. We can reshape the world in ways we couldn't before. Ways that better address so many of the challenges we face. And that's why so many are calling for a great reset. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. You'll know nothing and you'll be happy. It's a phrase you've probably heard over the last couple of years. But what exactly does it mean? really does come across as a Bond supervillain. Like, it really is too much, isn't it? But these are the people who say you will own nothing and be happy. They're the ones who say, eat the bugs. Eat meat made by a machine. They really do say this. So that's the World Economic Forum going on in Davos. A train ride away is the World Health Assembly. That's the World Health Organization of the United Nations. It's one of their major agencies um, they've got a treaty that they're debating. Have you read about that treaty in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, in your local daily newspaper on the CBC CTV? It really is a treaty. Here, you can see it here. This is from the World Health Organization's website. Why aren't they talking about it? Who's going to cover that? Do you think the media I've just listed are going to cover that? Why? They're all on the take for Justin Trudeau. They're not going to do anything that will embarrass him. We will cover it like we have covered the United Nations in the past. What's so interesting is the media who like to say they speak truth to power, like to envisage themselves as some sort of official opposition, they have ceased taking that role. They stopped when the pandemic began. They don't hold the government to account. We do, even when we're banned from going to events. Like I say, the World Health Organization is part of the UN. I want to show you how our own Sheila Gunn-Reed did journalism from UN events, talking about things that you're not supposed to talk about. Here she is at Marrakesh. Just take a look at this. The COP22 UN Climate Conference is underway, and myself and the rest of the Rebel team are just settling in here to Marrakesh, Morocco, to bring you a week full of coverage that you know you won't see or hear anywhere else in the mainstream media. And even though we aren't even inside the conference center yet, we are already hard at work. Now, everywhere in the city are these massive signs and banners proclaiming the presence of COP22. And these signs, well, they're obviously headed for the trash after this conference wraps up in just a week. It's just a big fancy disposable show for the world that goes in the garbage can when all the rich elites go back to wherever they came from. And all day there were rich people in nice cars, SUVs actually, coming and going from the conference center site. And the conference center site itself is, well, it's completely astroturfed in the middle of this old world city with North African architecture is this big fake plastic tarped complex manned by UN guards. 
And completely unironically, the conference center itself is directly under the flight path to the airport. The globalist elites, well, they're going to have a hard time ignoring that fossil fuels are the reason that they got here and fossil fuels will be the reason that they get home with that constant reminder overhead. But rest assured, we know these elites well. These climate conferences are generally held in warm climates or luxurious places that you'd want to travel to. Last year it was Paris. They've been held recently in Lima, Peru, Durban, South Africa, and even Cancun, Mexico. They never hold these fancy shindigs in places like Red Deer, Alberta, or Timmins, Ontario, or Hay River, Northwest Territories. Those are the places where real people will pay the price for the policies being written here by people they didn't elect this week. We've only been here a few hours, but something just seems so fake about all of this. The fake parking lot for the SUVs, the fake signs all over town, the fake buildings behind a big fake wall. It feels as fake as the real motivations for this conference. Fake as in, these elites will tell you that they care about climate change, but what they really care about is control over you. Now, we're going to show you the fossil-fueled hypocrisy of this conference and the deep pockets behind all the delegates and all the activists here on the ground. And we want to show you the real Marrakesh, the regular everyday people who are living in the shadow of this opulent conference of globalist overlords that's taking over their city for the next week. Now, we fought hard at the Rebel against UN censorship to get our team here. And one of our team members, our producer, Megan McSween, well, she's still not accredited for the conference, but that isn't going to stop us. It won't stop us. We've figured out a way here on the ground to work together, but still be apart. We're going to show you what really happens at these UN climate conferences, not what they want you to see. For the Rebel.media, I'm Sheila Gunreed. Oh, I love that. Here's Sheila at another UN convention on global warming also, pointing out the diesel fire generators. Remember this? Here on the ground in Katowice, Poland, at the United Nations UN Climate Change Conference. And for the second year in a row, the diesel-powered frost fighters have made another appearance. Now, these little tarp structures behind us, it's, I think they are uh, an emergency services temporary sort of little setup here, but they're being heated by diesel or kerosene powered frost fighters because it's cold in Poland and I think even the UN acknowledges that. For the Rebel.media, I'm Sheila Gunry. Well, that's our style. And like I say, we can travel again. Well, not we, because we implies I'm part of the we. No, I can't travel again. And actually a lot of our staff in Canada can't travel, but our staff from around the world can because they don't have no-fly zones in Australia or the United Kingdom or the United States. And so some of our best rebels, not from Canada, but from elsewhere in the world, have gone to Davos and are going to Geneva. And I want to show you a wonderful video from the first of our team to land. Abi Yamini, our chief Australia correspondent and the two-time winner of the Viewer's Choice Award, let me show you a great video he made with another independent journalist we flew in from Australia named Rakshan Fernando, who's been another critic, uh, a citizen journalist of the lockdowns. I'm gonna play this in full for you. It's about four minutes. G'day ladies and gentlemen from the Swiss capital of Zurich. We're here now on our way into 
Davos. Yes, we're doing that in an election week. Yeah, I mean, I was actually torn about coming here while the election's happening, but we, d we had a chat and we thought, you know what, this is where the people who actually set the agenda, despite whoever wins the election in Australia, the agenda for what happens in Australia and many of the countries around the world is set here. So we're going to let the mainstream media focus on the election results. We're going to let all the other great alternative uh, media in Australia do the live streams. We're here to bring you the other side of the story from the World Economic Forum and the WHO meeting. But none of this is possible without your help. So wefreports.com we're doing a budget but it still costs a lot of money so anything you can chip in to help make this possible we are forever grateful we'll just get one way one way yeah. one way so you don't become... we hopefully never come back no i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> okay uh how many person um two, two. but and he's a child so it's maybe cheaper and not <laughs> I'm not helping. You travel first or second class? The lowest class you have. What's the difference in price? I check. You have any reductions? What do you mean? Reduction cards in Switzerland or no? First time here. First time here, but if you give me a reduction, maybe I'll come back. Unlike those who are coming here to preach climate responsibility in their jets and private limos. This is how we're getting around. I can't believe a hundred and, what was it, a hundred and six dollars? dollars each. To get there. Yeah. That's just one of the, That's a very expensive train. It's, it's just mental because that's economy. So to think about, but I think it's worth it. Remember the, the last straw, I reckon, and I think that makes this whole thing worth it above just the World Economic Forum is a fact that at the same time here the WHO is essentially meeting to take control of even Australia. Yeah, I mean how hard has it been for us over the last two years dealing with our state governments and our federal governments and to think now that we have a worldwide body, these organizations, um, you know these NGOs in an essence running our lives, calling the shots. They want to consolidate power. That's what this is about, and that's why I think it is so worth us being here. And if you agree, check out all the reports at wefreports.com and consider chucking a few bucks. This is just one trip, $106 Australian each, one way. So none of this is possible without your generosity. We're traveling economy. We're not uh, taking limos, flying jets. We are doing it. <laughs> ghetto we staying in little rooms or an airbnb together with the other guys but all of that is just it, it wouldn't be possible without your support wefreports.com chuck in a few bucks and we'll bring you the other side of the story from switzerland rukshan rebel That's news fun. this is exciting stuff thanks for your support i mean my main feeling is, boy, I wish I was there. But my immediate second feeling is I'm so proud of what Rebel News is doing. And I'm so delighted that Avi, with his trademark sense of humor and his energy, is there in Davos today. Take a look at this. 
Avi got there a little early because him and Raksham wanted to get over the jet lag because coming all the way from Australia, you could imagine. So they got there a little earlier than they were supposed to get there because they were still setting up this fake town of Davos. It's like a movie set they were building. Take a look. So here we are, Avi. This is it. In uh, Davos. What is it taking us? What day is it today? It's the third day, I think. Third day, days. so it's taking us three days. whole days. If you're ever in doubt as to whether the mainstream media is going to actually ask the tough questions, I think that gives you the answer. They're part of it. Yeah. They're literally a part of it. Oh, the purveyors of misinformation there. As you can see, the security is really ramping up behind us in the lead up to the annual meeting here in Davos. Military everywhere, police, as you can see, converging on this small town in Switzerland. So we've got IBM here, virtue signaling. Let's create a better world with a smaller carbon footprint. <laughs> Let's create and that changes everything. I wonder what their carbon footprint was just to set this up for a week. <laughs> Such hypocrites. I wonder what their carbon footprint was for the executives to fly into Davos on their private jets and their limos and everything that they're going to come here with. It's all for show. Look at the building and then look, they've kind of built this fake wall in front of it. It's everything here is fake and I think it's fitting. It's fitting that all their buildings are fake because <laughs> everything about this and them and everything to do with this World Economic yeah. Forum is fake. Not, even the India Lounge? Is the India Lounge fake? 100%. <laughs> we only believe in the Sri Lanka Lounge. Just think about the waste of money and resources going into self-promotion here. But they, they justify this though. There's justification for this from that side, saying this is necessary to do. Now, do you reckon Zelensky will make an appearance? He'd be silly not to. Come on, how else is he going to win the war against Russia if he doesn't show up to the WEF? Isn't that great? Obvious. I tell you, he's, he's punching above his weight. He's doing such good journalism there. In addition to Avi and Rukshan, we have Jeremy Lafredo, and you've seen him a few times. He's, he's the newest rebel. He um, joined us to cover the U.S. convoy. So he's coming in from New York City. Excuse me. Lewis Brackpool, our Brit, who's going to be the host of our docuseries on The Great Reset, He's coming in from London. And like I say, we've teamed up with some other journalists who were sort of allies of ours in different places because we rented an Airbnb outside of Davos and it had some extra rooms. So I said to Sophie Corcoran, a young uh, independent citizen journalist from the UK, I said, look, come on over. We'll crowdfund your flight from the UK. You can stay with the Airbnb and run with our guy. She's very young. She agreed. And Savannah Hernandez, who's just amazing. She was with The Blaze. She now works for Truth Social. She's coming, too, from Texas. So we've got six people all together, half of whom are rebels working for a company, and half are sort of friends of rebels. And I want to tell you what they're doing. They're not there to chase down conspiracy theories. Because there's a difference between conspiracy theories and conspiracy 
facts. They're there to get the facts. And the thing about a lot of these facts is Klaus Schwab and Yuval Noah Harari, they say them to you. They say them out loud. Like this insane statement by Klaus Schwab. And I have to say, um, when I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. But um, what we are very proud of now is the young generation, like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Pres of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was a at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world economy right. form. And that's true in Argentina too. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. That's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina and uh, it's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the president, with a young global leader, but. They talk about infiltrating and penetrating the world's cabinets. They talk about the Great Reset. It's not a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy. Listen to them say it. I don't know how it will play out in uh, November, but what we know is that we will end up with many more unemployed and uh, particularly also people in the gray economy which are not counted for uh, who lose their jobs so we will see definitively a lot of anger uh, already now but probably increase by the end of the year uh, because this crisis will be with us until we really have found a remedy so um, we have to prepare for a more angry world and uh, how to prepare, uh, it means to take the necessary action to create a fairer world, um, to see that uh, we provide everybody with uh, decent access to the health system, um, that we make sure that those people uh, who are really left behind, uh, and I'm not speaking only on national levels, I'm speaking also internationally, if I see now, uh, the tragedy in some of the emerging countries like South Africa, like some countries in East Asia. I think it's all, uh, I, I don't have too many remedies. The, the remedies have to be discussed through dialogue by the stakeholders of our global system. But um, I just see the need for such a dialogue and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. And that creepy phrase, build back better. It's like they're all reading from a script. Because they are. Take a look. It's a very pertinent question to ask, how do we build back better? To build back better or whatever. We have a chance to reset the clock and build back better than before. To build back better than before. Remember the, the terrible damage of COVID as we try to build back from this uh, global pandemic. Joe Biden calls it Build Back Better. Build Back Better. Building Back Better. To do things differently. To build back better. We're going to build it back better. And build it back better. This is my plan to build back better. 
start taking all the problems that have been created in right. education, mental health, and start to, to build back in a positive way. I have launched a booklet called Build Back Better, Britain After Coronavirus. It's about building this country back better. Growing conspiracy following it. It is called The Great Reset. An unprecedented opportunity to rethink and reset the ways in which we live. The great opportunity for reset. The theory even calls Mr. Biden's campaign slogan, Build Back Better, a front for the conspiracy. Build back better. Building back better our economy. Build back better. All elements of the Great Reset are fundamental to building the future we need. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. It's a big effort to, some would say, to build back, back better. We would say to really have a great reset. Conspiracy, conspiracy, conspiracy. That's World Economic uh, Forum. But the World Health Organization, World A, they're both globalists. I bet there's a lot of cross-pollination. I bet there's helicopters speeding back and forth all the time between these two massive conventions. On the one hand, in Geneva, you have the United Nations. So you've got the global government types, the bureaucrats, the diplomats. And at the World Economic Forum side in Davos, you've got the oligarchs, the billionaires, the celebrities, the mooches and the money guys, back and forth and back and forth. We're going to separate the conspiracy theories from the conspiracies. We're going to do actual reporting for you. I'm very proud of the work we've done even in the first hours, Avi and Rukshan, and our team is making their way now. I see our people getting on planes in the different cities. They're all going to meet there. I'm very excited about this journal, so I'm just excited that our people are flying again after two years being locked down. I look forward to one day, I hope, when I too might be able to join them and the rest of our unvaxxed crew here can fly. But for now, let me invite you to go to WEF, World Economic Forum, wefreports.com. I think it's going to be some of the best journalism ever done on the subject. All right, stay with us. Up next, Conrad Black talking about the state of conservative politics here in Canada. Well, my guest today needs no introduction, Conrad Black. He has been following conservative politics and practicing conservative politics and journalism for more than 50 years on both sides of the Atlantic. We're lucky to have him in the studio today for a quick catch-up. Uh, great to see you again. This is an exciting conservative leadership race. I think I can say that, especially in the contrast to the, the two previous ones. I'm talking about the Canadian yes. Conservative Party. What do you think? I think, I think it's quite a good group of candidates. Uh, I think we were all, in, including some non-conservatives, disappointed that some of the prominent possible contenders didn't appear in the last two in the last two uh, leadership conventions. They just didn't run, and and so you got the impression they weren't necessarily, with no disrespect to the people who did run, putting their best people forward. Uh, I mean, many people wanted John Charette to run earlier. Many wanted uh, John Baird to run. Uh, you know, there, 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 you know, many wanted Jason Kenney, though it was kind of impractical given how recently he'd uh, gone back to Alberta. But um, 
I think that, that all of these candidates are quite articulate, and I think there's a bit of variation between all of them. They're not just echoing each other. And I think it's been reasonably civil. Not, <coughs> excuse me, not a lot of mudslinging or that kind of thing. It's been a bit of it, but not much. And different different approaches to it. I mean, Patrick Brown, as anyone who follows it knows, is extremely adept at signing up huge numbers of people amongst certain ethnic groups. And, and he's really making a drive to get his people in as members capable of voting. And I wouldn't underestimate what he can do. Jean Charest is a remarkably experienced man, a former leader of the federal party, a three-term premier of Quebec with the Liberal Party of Quebec, which in, in Quebec, as in British Columbia, as you know, is really a coalition of liberals and conservatives. There, there isn't a conservative party for provincially in that province. And uh, so he, you know, he's a, he's a well-traveled man without being a worn out old spavined wheel horse, you know. And, uh, and of course, Pierre Poiliev is, a, is an exceptionally fine candidate. He's very articulate. I think he is clearly uh, presenting a genuine conservative viewpoint. They try to uh, misrepresent him as an extremist, which he isn't, and he replies that he is only advocating the liberty of everyone to do as much as they can without infringing on the liberty of others. And it's very hard to fight that, as it should be. And I thought it was a terrible thing when Andrew Scheer, who was a good man but was not a strong campaigner, um, ran unabashedly as a genuine social conservative, and they smeared him as someone who would ban abortion and things like this. And, and he wasn't really able to stand up to that. But I find Pierre is, uh, I, I don't know disrespect to Andrew Scheer, but he's made of firmer stuff in this way. And he, he, does, uh, he does respond very forcefully to his critics. And I, 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 I think it's working. Yeah, I, I heard him uh, just the other night, uh, Pierre Polyev, and I would call it a working class conservatism. And there is such a thing, uh, especially when you look at the new Democratic Party led by Jagmeet Singh, a, a clothes horse who drives a BMW and who's exquisite and cares more about elite, you know, university an, politics. An exotic Maharaja. You know, what? I, I, I mean, there's no working class leader in in Ottawa. So and certainly it isn't Justin, no. And, 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 you're, and it's working class and middle class, I would say, manages both. Yeah. But you're, you're right, he's not a, a kind of aristocratic conservative. And, and so I see the, the elite establishments <laughs> just smashing him. I, but I think that's working for him when the Global Mail editorial page denounces him as dangerous. I think a lot of people say, oh, good, I, I want to be a bit of a danger to the Globe and Mail editorial page. It's a better description of the Globe and Mail, yeah, huh. I agree. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned there's not too much uh, brutal... Uh, you know, smears or... I, well, but there, I, there is some, but it's not as bad as it is sometimes. I don't think it's bad at all because I think I think it's real. I think if there was a false agreeableness, I, I like the clash of ideas. Let the party have a stark choice. Let the party have a real choice and let it choose a flavor, not a blend, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Look, the, the conservatives historically, since 1917, more than a century, and I cite that year because it was that year that effectively the conservative government imposed conscription on the French Canadians. And uh, they, they, so they could kiss Quebec goodbye for a long time after that, as Sir Wilfrid Laurier said would happen. But from, from then on, the conservatives only have won either because after three or four, or even five liberal victories, the electorate of this country traditionally thinks we simply have to give yeah. the other side a chance or in the alternative, 
where they can present a conservative viewpoint and defend it from the inevitable avalanche of media and academic yeah. opinion reinforcing partisan opinion that this is harsh and extreme and un-Canadian. And, and uh, you know, you had, you, you had the, uh, the liberals for almost all of the, t uh, all of the 20s and one term with Bennett, the liberals 22 years, <coughs> pardon me, and then uh, six years with Mr. Diefenbaker, the liberals except for a few months with Joe Clark and other uh, 20, 21 years, and then, then Brian Mulroney came. But uh, it, you know, that if we're going to have a two-party system, we, we, we've got to change that. You've got to start out most elections with the idea that either side can come to bat, as they yeah. do in the United States and Britain. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're almost seven years into Trudeau. With that passage of time, what are your thoughts from a distance of Stephen Harper's term as prime minister. Do you think he looks better uh, now that time has passed? Yes, I, and I thought he was a good prime minister. I had Me too. I had serious personal differences with him and our own relations are, don't exist and, and they wouldn't be cordial if they did exist, but that's for other reasons. I always have said and wrote in my history of Canada, I never will allow these personal things to get in the way of a judgment of that kind, that he was a very good prime minister. And and uh, by the way, I, I, I had, uh, extremely uh, uh, profound disagreement and a rather acidulous one with uh, Jean Chrétien, but I think he was a, a, a adequately competent prime minister. I don't think he was exceptionally good. It, it's always He's easy. He's a manager. He put out fires. He didn't start them. This is right. And, and, and it's not hard when, you, when the official opposition is divided into three parties. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but um, with that said, he, uh, it was a competent government, other than the almost lost to the second referendum. But, yeah. uh, uh, but as I say, I, I, whatever I might think of the individual prime minister uh, ha, ha, is completely separate from my historical examination of how they performed. I, I think Stephen Harper was uh, in in that second group, just behind our very best prime ministers, in the same group with Brian Mulroney, Mr. Saint Laurent, and and Mr. Pearson, very distinguished people. So I, I, I agree with you. I think Stephen was. I think he was a very good prime minister. I remember when Trudeau was ascending. I remember reading your comments about him, and they seemed, I'm not going to say that you were endorsing him, but that you were hoping or putting the best foot forward or giving him the benefit of the doubt. I was slightly surprised by how friendly your assessment of him was in the early days. Justin. We're Justin about, Trudeau. Yeah. And now that with the passage of time, how do you feel about him, his team, his philosophy, if he even has one? Uh, well, uh, you're you're right in how I treated him as he as he came up. Uh, that was partly because I've known him since he was very little, and uh, I've always liked him. And I still like him. I think he is actually a very nice man, and that cannot be said of everyone who's ever held that position. And they're not there necessarily to be nice. And the fact that he is a nice man doesn't mean that he's a particularly good prime minister. But I did take that into account. Also, I I, I was. Uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, I thought maybe it was a time for a change from Harper. He'd become very inflexible, and I had the impression that after he cut the sales tax and did a few other things, he just had no more ideas. And we had a very long campaign, I, I assumed, because he didn't want Parliament sitting when when Mike Duffy testified in that spurious case that was inflicted on him. 
and and and, and the, his basic argument was that he wouldn't allow in the, you know there was a tremendous humanitarian crisis in the Middle East at that time, and Stevens said he wouldn't allow in half a million Syrians. Well, this was just, I thought it was just nonsense. How were half a million Syrians going to get here? They have to be pretty skilled yachtsmen, and, and uh, so I, I you know th that was my that was my reasoning, and also. I thought it was very important that the Liberal Party come back ahead of the NDP. I didn't like the NDP being as, as large as it was. So that was why I was relatively favorable to Justin. I think he's, and I, I, don't, I don't like to say this, but I don't think he's been a good prime minister. Yeah, I, I, I think he's sort of ineffectual, and I think all he has to show for seven years is an excessive attention from a mistaken perspective on native issues. He hasn't actually improved their condition. He's just aggravated the, the blood libels on English and French Canadians for 400 years for supposedly having attempted some form of genocide on them. Secondly, he's completely clamped his lips around the gas pipe, not to make a terrible pun, on, on, on climate matters. He's bought a line that is nonsense, and he's declared war on, on, on Alberta and Saskatchewan, which is not what prime ministers are to do. They want to conciliate the regions. He's been absolutely useless, as the official opposition and the NDP have, by the way, on uh, standing up for minority official cultural rights, especially in Quebec, which is now effectively exterminating the English language. I mean, they won't. You can't exterminate the English language, but that's what they're trying to do. And I, I think uh, he also got terribly preoccupied with gender issues in a way that, that was not justified. I mean. Look, in, in, there are two sexes, and people can work out their own sexuality for themselves, and as long as they don't resort to coercion or outraged reasonable standards of public decency, everyone should do what they like. Yeah. I'd add one more list, uh, one more item to your list. Uh, for the, uh, the family that helped to bring back the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I think Trudeau has been very cavalier with uh, infringing on civil liberties. Look, his father would, if necessary... Uh, have, as he did in 1970, called out the army to prevent the implementation of Quebec's present Bill 96. He would not have stood for it. Hmm. It's an outrage. Well, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of the lockdowns and and the, the yeah, demonization yeah, yeah, yeah. of uh, uh, unvaccinated uh, people and the flight bans. And I quite agree. And, and six million Canadians who, for their own reasons, declined to be vaccinated can't leave the country. I mean, this, this can't fly in the country. Can't, can't fly can't, within it. You're right. Can't move around within it. Yeah, by by plane. That's right. If they want to go from Vancouver to Montreal, I have to drive or take a train. Oh, you can't take a train or a bus. Yeah. I got one last question for you. I appreciate your survey of, of the scene in Canadian politics. I'm riveted by what's going on in the United States. Joe Biden, I think, is underperforming what even his uh, critics thought he would do. Yes. Whether it's inflation foreign affairs, <coughs> open borders, immigration. I, I really think it's a disaster. Even the polls show it. Um, Donald Trump is waiting in the wings. Will he run again? Will he not? Will Ron DeSantis of Florida throw his hat in the ring? I know you follow American politics, too. You wrote a book about Trump. If you had to make a prediction for the next couple of years in America, who's going to be the standard bearer on the right? Uh, can Joe Biden pull it back, or is he himself going to be thrown out by the Democrats? I don't think they'll throw him out. I, I think I think the party elders may suggest to him that it is time for him to invoke a medical reason and say that his doctors say that it's really not that it has been since inauguration day, but that that, that, that really he, he's it's becoming too challenging for him. 
and anyone can identify with that. I think you'd all get some sympathy for that, including yeah. for me. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a. We all know people who become elderly and start to slip in their in their faculties, and and uh, you you just have to uh, sympathize with it. But um, I, I, there's no there's no chance in the world that he's going to be renominated, and I don't I can hardly imagine he would seek to be renominated. Huh. But uh, um, I, I, I think there might then be an effort because the progressive agenda, so-called, has been such an unmitigated disaster to get a moderate Democrat back, man, like, say, Sherrod Brown in Ohio or, or the, a number. I mean, I don't know all the Democratic governors. I, they, they must have some capable people in that party. And I think that's I think they'll try and put such a person as that ahead of the present vice president, Harris, who's also a disappointment. But I, I in my opinion, uh, Trump is demonstrating that he he is first in the hearts of the Republican Party, and he can have the nomination if he wants it. And and it is almost inconceivable to me after such a disastrous administration that that uh, the Democrats would be reelected, no matter who their candidate is. So mm -hmm. I, I think Trump is the likely favorite to be the next president, and only the second president after Grover Cleveland to have non-consecutive terms. Mm -hmm. Well, interesting times, that's for sure. It's great to catch up with you. Thank you, Ezra. I was glad to be with you. All right, there you have it. Conrad Black, stay with us. Your letters to me next. Hey, welcome back. Your letters to me. Someone with the initials TCZ says the conservatives had no hope of being reelected with him as leader. He had no credibility amongst any group at this point and had to go. Hopefully with a young, vibrant leader, there is a hope that conservatives can now get reelected. <laughs> you know, I know you're writing about Jason Kenney because that was our long talk the other day. But I was just thinking that could probably apply to Aaron O'Toole as well. Except for Aaron O'Toole was in opposition. It's easier to be principled when you're in opposition. I mean, you don't actually have to implement anything. You just have to really be a good thinker and talker. Aaron O'Toole was a coward in opposition. Jason Kenney was atrocious in government. And he used the power of the state to enforce, enforce a vicious lockdown. And whereas Aaron O'Toole just, you know, was a bit of a coward, let's be honest. Jason Kenney was worse. He was a coward and a tyrant. I can't believe it because he was so good. He was the hope for conservatives for so long. Someone with a nickname Ducky says, I don't understand when people call Rebel News hard right, when they always criticize conservatives like Kenny and Ford. Meanwhile, I'm tired of seeing MSM propping up Trudeau after several disasters he has caused. We need some damn accountability. You know, I, I used to be pretty good friends with Jason Kenny, and it was hard for me to put that personal friendship aside and talk about him candidly, but I felt like I had to or not talk about him at all. And there's no way that a Canadian news organization simply can't talk about Jason Kenney, the premier of the province and a, a serious actor on the stage. And there was no way that I was going to lie about what he was doing. And I think it was our duty to call it like we see it, just like it's our duty with Doug Ford. And I say this is a guy who sat right here. I mean, Doug Ford was right in our building here. We had Doug Ford speak at a rebel conference before. We were chummy. I'm not going to say we were close, but if you do not criticize your friends when they violate their principles, then you yourself are violating your principles, I think. And as I just said about Aaron O'Toole, at least when you're in opposition, all you have to do is 
show a little bit of moral courage. You don't have to do anything. I think that's our role here too. We don't actually implement any laws here at Rebel News. We actually don't have any real power. If, the, if all we are being asked to do is to give our honest conservative criticism of the world, then surely we can do that. M. Shecky says, Project Veritas is doing something, top-notch journalism, and has a perfect record of never being found guilty in the multitude of cases brought against them. Rebel needs some undercover work. The libs shouldn't be hard to expose. They're not too bright, to say the least. <laughs> I've had the pleasure of meeting James O'Keefe a few times. He really is excellent. I think the chief characteristic for a job like his is patience. Because you're so excited, you get a little nibble. It's like when you're fishing, you get a little nibble on that hook. Well, you got to reel it in. You got to really, and you can't panic, and you can't break, you know, character. I, I just find it remarkable that these undercover reporters keep a stone face uh, when they are where they are. No, they're outstanding. I think undercover journalism is a little bit harder to do than it looks, uh, and it sort of does look hard too. I have nothing but admiration for Project Veritas, and uh, who knows, maybe one day we'll be uh, able to do some of that too, but it's a, it's a special skill. Well, that's our show for the week. We will have a show on Monday, holiday Monday, so we'll see you then. Until then, let me say goodbye to you, and you keep fighting for freedom over the weekend, but let me leave you with this video of the day from Drea Humphrey. It's an update on a case that we crowdfunded Fighting Vaccine Passports in British Columbia Court. I'm very proud of this case. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Drea Humphrey here with Rebel News. And I just got out of day one of what is supposed to be a three-day hearing brought forward by the Canadian Society for the Advancements of Science in Public Policy. We're going to speak to the counsel, Polina Fortula, for the society and the plaintiff, Kip Warner, in just a few minutes but I wanted to give you a rundown on what happened in this court. If you haven't been up to date with my reports, I've been covering quite closely all four of the cases. The first case that was brought forward was brought forward by the Canadian Foundation Constitution. Then it was followed by our special dear and near to our hearts case, the Democracy Funds case, which Rebel News supporters like yourself generously chipped in to help make happen. And then a self-represented man from Victoria, BC named Jeremy Maddock took a shot at going at the vaccine passports. And now here we are with this challenge. The Honorable Chief Justice Hinkson is presiding over all four matters. He's heard a lot of arguments, some of which overlapped like Chief Medical Health Officer Patty Daly from Vancouver Coastal Health, basically acknowledging this. The vaccine passport requires people to be vaccinated to do certain discretionary activities, uh, such as go to restaurants, movies, uh, gyms, not because these places are high risk. We're not actually seeing COVID transmission in these settings. It's, it's really to create an incentive to improve our vaccination coverage. Or letters written to UBC by chief medical health officers, as well as their science board at the school, saying that at this time, when it comes to the Omicron variant, there really is no scientific reason for discriminating between unvaccinated and vaccinated individuals when it comes to restrictions. Now, despite that evidence being available, as was brought up into court today, Dr. Bonnie Henry did not drop the vaccine passport until April 8th. In fact, 
British Columbia was the last province to drop their mandate. And it's not been too long since their public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, promised we'd never be in this situation in the first place. This virus has shown us that there are inequities in our society that have been exacerbated by this pandemic. And there is no way that we will recommend um, inequities be increased by use of things like vaccine passports for services for public access here in British Columbia. And that's my advice. And I've uh, got support from the Premier and I have talked about this, Minister Dix and others. Now, Justice Hick Kingston has waited and will be reserving judgment until he's heard all of these cases. And like I said, this one is possibly a three-day hearing. So it's a lot's going to go down. At first, it, it did seem as though the council was a little bit arguing on the premise of science, which Chief Justice Hinkson didn't seem to be too fond of, but she quickly switched gears and started to use those examples that I said, like from Chief Medical Health Officer and even a quote from Dr. Bonnie Henry, who admitted that when it came to hospitalizations for COVID-19, around 60% of them weren't actually there because of the issue of COVID-19, but rather for other issues, maybe an injury or maybe a pregnancy for such. So if that's the case, were these restrictions, these orders reasonable? And of course, the argument from the society is that no, they are not. They are unconstitutional. Um, now with Omicron, the unvaccinated are a smaller proportion. And partly that's because uh, some of the people, a good proportion of people in hospital, and I'll have that data to show you, are people who are admitted for other reasons and have a positive COVID test. So it's not COVID that's driving them into hospital. Unique to this case is that the society had an expert report from the former public health officer of Manitoba, Dr. Joel Kettner. Dr. Bonnie Henry's lawyer spent quite a bit of time trying to get this report dismissed as expert evidence. Now, it appeared as though the judge wasn't having it. He questioned why that should be the case. You'll find more of that out in my tweets, and we'll have to wait to see if this report stands for this fight. So we're going to have a quick recap with the lawyer to see why this case matters. And if you want to catch up on actually words and quotes from both the justice and the councils and the government's lawyers on what happened, you can click on my link to my live tweets from the courthouse that are linked in the description below. And then you'll have a really good look of what went down for day one in court. This is Counsel Polina Fortula. You just stepped out of day one of the case. Why don't you let some of the people watching know why this case should matter to Canadians? This case is important because what we're challenging um, is the orders that mandate vaccination passports in order to attend uh, public gatherings and events, as well as restaurants. And although uh, the mandates have been lifted, uh, we do expect there to be further mandates in the fall. So it's important for the court to consider our arguments and determine whether the orders are reasonable uh, in the circumstances and whether the exemptions that the CSAP society, which uh, brought this um, proceedings forward um, are reasonable. And are you guys also addressing some of the healthcare specific orders as well? The healthcare orders are being addressed in a separate petition. Uh, this is this one only relates to the vaccination passports for restaurants and events. 
Well, I know just from my coverage on things like this, there wasn't a whole lot of counsel that came forward to take on these types of cases. How did this come to be that you took on this case? Who's responsible for that? And anything else you want to add on that? Well, it's uh, really the society CSAP that uh, fundraised uh, the funds necessary to bring these challenges forward. It is very expensive to challenge a law or an order by a government official in court. It takes many months and it costs uh, thousands of dollars. So most British Columbians, especially with the COVID restrictions, can't really afford that. So the public fundraising fundraising campaign, excuse me, has been fundamental in ensuring that we can challenge these orders. And so we hope that the public continues to be engaged with the society, with CSAP, and um, continue to provide uh, funding just so we can continue to challenge uh, the orders and uh, work on behalf of British Columbians' rights. Absolutely. Well, we'll have more on this important court case coming up. This was just day one and it might stretch to day three. So we'll keep you posted. Thank you so much. Thank you.